All right, take your Bibles now if you would take to Genesis chapter 23. Genesis 23. The stories of the patriarchs, right, of Noah and Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. These are the stories of families. This isn't surprising as the entire story of mankind is of us building families into ordered societies. To do this requires many things. But based on how the Lord has created us, among the most significant are that we anchor our families in a place and in a faith. Let's talk about those two for just a moment. I think perhaps we underestimate the importance of physical place. By that I mean we downplay the significance of being rooted in a single place over a long period of time. One of the casualties of this modern tendency to move from place to place is family stability. I mean, it's, it's rare in so many cases to meet someone who was born, raised, and settled in a place. I mean, when was the last time you did that? And what was your response? Was it like, oh man, really? I mean, I think I, think I only know one person who was born and raised and settled in Raleigh. I, I could be wrong, but I know of one. <laughs> There are many reasons for the transient nature of our society, but few of them are good. This, this transience builds uncertainty in our families. We're inclined to go where the job takes us without giving much thought about whether that's a good idea. We change schools and churches and jobs and homes so often that it hardly registers anymore. We'd be wrong to think such transience has no impact on our families. Look, I'm as guilty as the next person. We've been married 31 years. We've lived in 12 places. I mean, when people ask me, so hey, where are you from? I'm like, okay, what criteria do I use? I usually say I'm from the St. Louis area because that's where I spent my childhood. Secondly, faith. Our, our faith anchors us in eternity. It gives our souls a resting place now and forever. The greatest fear of those who are not Christian is its death. Ironically, because they know that that death will lead them to a very dark and awful place. According to God's Word, and we've even sung it today, all of us, each man, woman, and child, knows judgment will come from God. To be Christian is to know that judgment's already happened for us in Christ. Therefore, our future place is secure, and it's faith that delivers that certainty. Still, in American families, passing down faith is often in competition with passing down other things, right? Uh, um, Commitment to academics or or athletics or or, or some other, something else that would take our time away from anchoring ourselves in our faith. I mean, how, how can we tell? How can we tell how many competitors there are to us passing down our faith? It's what do families, what do we spend most of our time on? And how do those expenditures of time compare to regular family devotion or attendance at Lord's Day worship or Sunday school or Bible study or small group? I mean, I remember there was a time when uh, schools and even local governments didn't plan things on Wednesdays or Sundays to make room for families to go to church. Well, that's all lost now, structurally, culturally, and perhaps worst how we think as families. So as a result of these two things, right, physical transience and competitors to passing down faith, we lack rootedness. We lack a sense of place and, and a sturdy faith. And so our families, our culture, 
is fragile. In fact, our lack in these areas makes us flighty, fearful, noncommittal. Many times we don't really invest in our neighbors, our schools, or even our churches because we just don't know, am I going to be here in a, in a year, in two years, in five? Of course, social media makes this even worse. It, it creates this unreal world, right? Convenient friends, fake intimacy. It makes us comfortable in cyberspace. You ever thought about that? Where is that exactly? It's nowhere. We're able to surround ourselves with people we know nothing about who cater only to our own views of the world. Isn't that crazy? I mean, there's nothing to challenge us, rebuke us, or grow us. So without a fixed sense of place and a sturdy faith, the fallenness of this world, or, or the tests that come from our Father, these things create in us anxiety, depression, anger. Beloved, in many ways, our houses, our houses are built on sand. Just what is firm in our lives? What in our lives can take the pressures and the burdens of this world without just falling to pieces? We, we've almost completed our study in the life of Abraham. Our text is Genesis 23. Sarah dies and she's buried. The next phase of the story is about Isaac and Rebekah. And then in chapter 25, we kind of return to Abraham. He joins his wife Sarah in the burial cave of Machpelah. And then we read about Jacob's children, or Isaac's children, Jacob and Esau. But Genesis 23 is a curious chapter. It's, a, it's an elaborate record of Abraham seeking burial property. Now, this is not the question of our text, but it comes from it. Why did, why did Abraham seek property instead of a tomb? All he needed was a tomb. In fact, as we'll see, he was offered a tomb. A tomb, a choice of his tomb from any of the men in Hebron. Yet he refused. He wanted property. But why? Abraham wanted to set the conditions for God to continue to fulfill his promises in his family. That's the question of our text. How do we set the conditions so that God may keep his promises to our families? Now, keep in mind, God... He has determined that he will act for the good of his people, period. He acts simply because he wills to do so. But at the same time, we have to recognize that the normal way that God acts for us, delivers his promises, blesses us, is through our actions. Normally, not always, but normally, it's through our action that God keeps his promises to us. So again, the question, how do we set the conditions so that God may keep his promises to our families? We go back to where we started. We must anchor our families in a place. And we must anchor our families in our faith. Let's read Genesis chapter 23. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. 
Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It's at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in and out at the gate of his city, No, my Lord, hear me. I give you this field. I give you the cave that's in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will, hear me. I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver? What's that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which is to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we turn to this curious word and we ask that you would work in our hearts, that we would connect, connect with the Spirit's intent here behind these words. Bless us, Lord, so that we might find our own way to continue to set the conditions for your blessings, that you would keep your promises as you have made them. In Jesus' name, amen. So our first point is this, in order for us to set the conditions for God to keep his promises, we must anchor our families in a place. Now, this point may land hard, because I I am questioning the wetness of the water we live in, so to speak. Physical transience, which is so common in our culture, is not an optimal condition for God to keep his promises to us. Of course, there, there, is, there are no real obstacles for God to keep His promises. However, as with growing in grace, the more we put to death the deeds of the flesh, the more we can put on the fruits of the Spirit. The transience that's a part of our culture is creating an unseen poverty in us, spiritually, even emotionally. Half of the solution to that poverty is us reclaiming our commitment to a place, a long-term home. You know this as well as I do. There are blessings that come from the Lord that are only unlocked with time and rootedness. Resilient friendships, deep faith, rich understanding of God, church, wisdom, intimacy. If our thinking is unsettled and transient, we lack uh, commitment to the place where we are, we will continue to be impoverished because this wars against how God has made us and against how God normally blesses us. Now, with that big fat caveat in mind, let's look at verse 1. Sarah lived 127 years. 
These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of the Canaan. In the land of Canaan, and Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and weep for her. No other woman in all of Scripture is spoken in this way. There's no other woman in Scripture that says, so-and-so lived X number of years. Moses is honoring Sarah here. Sarah lived 127 years. The mother of all Israel, the matriarch of the Hebrews. But perhaps he's even doing more with 127. You might remember in Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, God puts the limit on man's ages at what? 120. But she, curiously, lived to 127. Maybe if we take a little bit of symbolic liberty with 127... Moses is trying to tell us that Sarah lived a full, blessed life by the Lord. The other curious part about these verses is that this is the first first death and burial recorded in the Bible. And we see Abraham as a, a, a grieving man going through the steps of the formal rites of a funeral. Look at verse 3. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the sons of Het, A sojourner and a foreigner I am with you. You must give to me property for burial among you that I may bury the dead out of my sight. So he, he arose up from his mourning when it was complete and he went to Hebron to the city gate where he knew that he'd find men there for business. He describes himself humbly, a sojourner and a foreigner. He admits to them something they already know. He is a resident alien among them. The use of these two words indicates that he is utterly dependent upon them, upon their lands for survival, upon their lands for the, his, for the descendants of his people. So he appeals to them with humility because of the nature of his request. As a resident alien, he had no rights of property, and that's a big problem because Sarah is dead and she needs to be buried. Verse 5, And the sons of Het answered Abraham and said to him, You must hear us, my lord. You are a prince of God among us. You must bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. No man among us will withhold from you his tomb for burying your dead. Abraham calls himself a sojourner and a foreigner. They call him a prince of God among us. I mean, this is, this is beyond flattery. They esteemed and elevated Abraham after so many years. They gave him a, a title that they might even give to their own rulers. But rather than heed Abraham's request for property for a burial in verse 4, they offer him access to whichever tomb he wants so that he can bury Sarah. Verse 7, Abraham arose and bowed down low to the people of the land, sons of Het, and he said to them, If you are willing that I bury my dead out of my sight, you must hear me and press Ephron, son of Zohar, for me, that he give to me the cave of Machpelah that is his at the end of his field. For the full price, urge him to give it to me in your presence as property for a burial site. So Abraham, he stood and he bowed out of thanks and respect to the men who were gracious and kind to him in this offer. But instead of accepting a tomb, he strongly urged them to press Ephron for the cave at the end of his property. Machpelah means double cave or split cave, and it was thought to perhaps the cave had two main sections side by side or one on top of the other. But Ephron, son of Zohar, was a rare way to talk about a non-Hebrew. Zohar was an esteemed man among them. And perhaps either Abraham didn't see Ephron or he believed that it would be best that that the sons of Het themselves would go and speak to Zohar for his request. Again, Abraham had no standing among them as a sojourner. And he wasn't asking for the field as a free gift. He said, for the full price, 
or literally it says, for the full silver. He wanted to pay what it was worth. He didn't want to cheat anyone. He didn't want there to be any, any question about what was happening here. He wasn't even asking for the field that the cave sat in, just the cave at whatever price Ephron deemed appropriate. And he wanted to do it officially. Did you notice that? In your presence meant at the city gate, which was the place of official action. That would mean among all the peoples of the land, it would be known that the field and the cave belonged to Abraham. So here's, here's where we see the curious nature of this exchange. He wanted property. They offered a tomb. A tomb would be a resting place for Sarah, but not a place for Abraham and his descendants. And without a place, how would God keep the repeated promise he made to Abraham like he did in Genesis 12, verse 7? Again, the question is, how do we set the conditions so that God may keep his promises? And this answer is we anchor families in a place. The Lord has created us to be people of a place so that over time he can pour out his blessings upon us. It's it's striking how important place has been in Israel's history, right? Ancient and modern. Place was one of the core identifiers of the people. And this is not surprising because we were created this way. Adam and Eve had a place. King David had a place. We will even have a place. The new heavens and the new Jerusalem. The New Testament letters are written to churches in a place. The letters to the seven churches of Revelation, they were each in a place. I find it interesting that God often pronounces judgment upon his people by removing them from their place. Adam and Eve out of the garden, the Jews out of the land. There were several conditions in the law of God that if a Jew met them, they were to be ejected from the fellowship. If someone was leprous or had a bodily discharge or touched a dead animal or broke the Sabbath, in these cases and others, the punishment was to remove that person from their place. In fact, the leveret marriage, the law of leveret marriage that we saw play out with Boaz and Ruth, was designed to make it so that a Hebrew name wasn't lost because the property was lost. And then you've got the laws of Jubilee in Leviticus 25, made returning a Jew to his land a prime objective. Why? Was it just so that the nation of Israel wouldn't go extinct over time? Or were there something deeper going on? Listen to the Lord's instructions that he gave to the people in their Babylonian exile. Jeremiah 29, beginning of verse 5. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. What does that sound like? Find a place and make roots. Building houses, planting gardens, taking wives, multiplying, seek the welfare of the city. None of that was quick. And these are all good, but they happen over time. That last line I thought was particularly striking. But seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. You know what that word welfare is? It's shalom. It's an experience of wholeness, of security, of peace, of soundness, of prosperity, shalom. Shalom happens for the believer in two ways, and this is very important. First and foremost, our shalom comes to us with our union in Christ. In other words, when Christ gives saving faith, with it he gives wholeness, shalom, and peace. Paul says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, 
We have peace with God. As Christians, we're people of two places, aren't we? We've got a now place and a forever place. In Christ, the promises of God that pertain to our forever place, they're secure and they even flow to us now in this life. They're, they're spiritual and, and we receive them in every manner, all manner of ways. Our forever place has invaded this place in blessings. That means peace and wholeness and security and soundness and hope can be ours in abundance now. And we'll be immeasurable in the next place because of the work of Christ done for all who believe. As important as being people of a physical place is for our flourishing, and it is, I'll get there, apart from the work of Christ, the shalom that we find here is limited and it's unsatisfying. Christ is our rest. Christ is our soundness and our peace. Christ in us begins to restore our humanity that was lost when Adam disobeyed God. Are you cold? A little warm? Listen. Is Christ yours? Is all that he earned in his life, death, and resurrection yours? Whatever shalom you can build in this place with reputation and stuff, that stuff will stay here. And then you and I will open our eyes to a very different reality. Have you taken the time to look around you at all the things that you've put in your life to give it meaning, and have you observed its transience? Which of all of your accomplishments gives you standing before the throne of grace? Which of all your treasures secures your comfort and peace in heaven? None of them. Dear friends, if you've not put your hope and faith in Christ, then it will not matter how much you make of your earthly place. It will be left behind. But what will not be left behind, indeed what will prepare you for the blessings of God ahead, is trusting Christ to be your Savior and your shalom. No matter where I live, I am a son of God and have the inheritance of the next place sealed upon me by the Holy Spirit. In a sense, physical place is not relevant for the blessings of God, but... In another sense, it's very relevant, which is my second point. We set the conditions for shalom with a firm commitment to a place. Can wholeness, soundness, depth happen if we're constantly moving homes, jobs, churches, and towns? I mean, take our new church campus. What have we been saying about it all along? Why do we want to build a permanent church home? People are drawn to permanence. They're going to see the brick and mortar and go, that thing's not going anywhere. There must be people in there who want to invest in this community. I told you already that in my adult life, I've lived in 12 dwellings. I have abandoned 11 of them. Think about it. If you've moved around, what ties do you still have with where you left? Perhaps there's someone living where you once lived or where you once lived got bulldozed for something else. What claim do you have on that now? Zero. What's been lost? Shalom, confidence, a sense of place, steadiness, belonging, richness in relationships, love, warmth, familiarity, shelter. I was with Tim Sharp yesterday and Carrie. I, I have no idea how to get around Carrie. 
We've even lost some of our humanity. All of these things are connected to being in one place for an extended period of time. Even in my adult life, though I've moved into 12 different dwellings and they were each my place for a while I was there, is that adequate? But which is truly my home? Where, where, which do I call my place? Where may I find my heritage? What about friends I've made? Where are the anchors of my forebears? Am I better off because I had 12 homes? Is being a man of 12 places good for me? Is it consistent with my design? No. No, it's just not. Shalom has been lost each time. And by God's grace, each time it was, it was rebuilt. But beloved, Abraham's refusal to receive a tomb and to pursue land instead was him seeking a place for his family, his future. It was him seeking the possibility of shalom for his descendants. We cannot underestimate just how significant it is to be people of a place and just how impactful it is to lose shalom in our transients. So rootedness, first in Christ and then in a place, must be joined to a sturdy faith so that we can set the conditions for God to keep his promises to us. That's our second point. Look at verse 10. Now Ephron was seated among the sons of Het, and Ephron of Het answered Abraham in the hearing of the sons of Het, all who went in and out at the gate of the city, No, my Lord, you must hear me. The field I give to you and the cave that is in it I give to you before the eyes of the sons of my people I give to you. You must bury your dead. So Ephron was seated among the men, and he was willing to answer Abraham directly. Like the offer of a choice tomb, he graciously offered the cave and the field that was around it. He clearly saw Abraham's interest and wanted to capitalize it on, by including the field and thereby increasing the price. Beloved, this is actually part of the selling process in the ancient Near East. The seller looks gracious and generous, and yet his offer of a field is, is actually a test to see if Abraham would violate the cultural norms and actually take it. I, I suppose that salesmen these days don't use such tactics. But as with the last scene, to take this as a gift would leave Abraham with no real proof that the field and the cave belonged to him and not Ephron. Verse 13, Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. And he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you would hear me, I will give the silver for the field. Take it from me that I may bury my dead there. So in this verse, Abraham wisely parlays with Ephron, knowing the merchant's conventions. He knew Ephron wasn't really giving it to him. So is his humble response is to help him pay, or is to pay for it. Verse 14, so Ephron answered Abraham and said, my Lord, you must hear me. A piece of land worth 400 silver pieces? What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham heard Ephron. That's a funny way to put it, isn't it? Abraham got the message and weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had said in the hearing of the sons of Het. 400 shekels of silver, as was the currency of the merchants. Here we see the real deal going down. Abraham was waiting, waiting for Ephron to give him the price, and he finally did 400 shekels of silver. So using the merchant scales, again, everything done in order by the book, so there's no question. He weighed it all out in the presence of all who were there, making an official purchase. Verse 17. So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout this whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the sons of Het before all who were in at the gate of the city. Verse 20, the field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the sons of Het. This is the official record of the transaction. And here is the first 
possession of the Hebrews in the promised land, the first instance of God keeping his promise to Abraham that his descendants would live on the land. That cave would be used to bury Sarah, Abraham, Isaac, Rebekah. Maybe think Joseph would be buried there. So let's look at three applications. The first one is this, that Abraham, he pressed Ephron for the purchase price of the field. He was, he was intent on buying it because he knew what would be contained in it, not just the tombs of his people, but the beacon of their faith. 400 shekels seemed to be an exorbitant price, 400 pieces of silver. In contrast, David would buy the future site of the temple for only 50. Yet the field and the cave represented the beginning of God keeping his promises to Abraham. It was a treasure box that would serve all of God's people. Does this sound like a parable from the New Testament? Yes, it does. Hebrew, or Matthew chapter 13. The kingdom of heaven is like the treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. You ever wondered at that parable? Just what does that mean? Abraham's willingness to pay whatever it costs to get that field represents the man in the parable who is willing to more highly prize the kingdom of heaven than anything else he owned. And he didn't just say it was a value to him. He proved it was. Beloved, listen. The Lord Jesus paid the price to purchase the kingdom of heaven for his people. He then gifts that to us when we put our faith in him. So here's the question. This isn't about buying the kingdom, but rather it's about the worth to those of us who've received it. Do we more highly prize the kingdom of heaven over any other thing we possess? Do we prove it in how we live? That's the real question. Do we prove by our choices and our lifestyles that we value the kingdom of heaven over all else? Abraham pressed and pressed. He got the value. It was over-the-top exorbitant. He bought it anyway because he knew that field of Machpelah would be the beacon of, his, of the faith of his people, a representation of the promises that God had made to him. Remember what Jesus said about discipleship in Luke 14? He says this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. How many of you have whited that out of your Bible? I mean, that the love for the kingdom of heaven is so great that our love for our family looks like hatred in comparison. How could we possibly prove such a thing? I have two ideas. Time. Time. A week is 168 hours. We sleep, let's say, in theory, for 56 of those. We work for 40. That leaves us 72. How many of those 72 hours do you spend on kingdom things? Personal prayer and devotion, family devotion, Bible study, life group, Sunday school, worship, ministry. Now, without intending to bind anyone's conscience here, I did a conservative estimate of what I think a fully engaged, kingdom-loving Christian spends, and I came up with 16 hours, which ends up being a tithe of the entire amount. How much time do you spend on kingdom things each week? Is it a tithe? 
I know you want me to go to the next one. Treasures. Treasures are perhaps harder to quantify than time. However, when we strip away the tithing amounts required in ancient Israel, which amounted to 23%, we're left with 10%. 10% of our income devoted to the kingdom of heaven. Listen, recent research by Barna and others has found, listen, 66% of self-described born-again Christians give to the church. 3 to 5% of those give 10%. One-third of self-described born-again Christians give nothing to the church. Now, as the Be Bold campaign showed, we have a generous congregation, but this question always remains because we're always going to be tempted to keep what belongs to God, which is the tithe. So let me ask you, do we prove by our use of money that we love God more than anything else? We can say we value the kingdom of heaven over every other thing in our lives. But Abraham didn't just say it. He bought it. He did it. So, second thing. I mentioned that the cave of Machpelah was a beacon of their faith. And I'm going to come back to that in just a second. But when the Israelites were in that land and they had added to that field, um, the Passover and the temple worship. These beacons of faith happened within a context, context of the community life of the people. I would suggest to you that the Lord's Supper is for us that ever-present beacon of faith for us. But the Supper doesn't happen in isolation. We don't do personal communion for a reason. We do communion here in the church. If we anchor our families in our faith, we have to anchor our families in our church. You understand how those things go together? The church has the truth of God in its teaching and preaching. The church has the comfort of God in the Holy Spirit through the comfort of the saints. The church is where the Spirit works on our souls in the sacraments. The church is made up of people with whom we will spend eternity. The church is Christ's love. It's His bride. It's the recipient of His prayers. Beloved, there is no soul-resting glory. There is soul-resting glory for every saint in the faithful confessing church. Beloved, no church is perfect. Even the churches that the apostles planted received their scorn and chastisement. But there's no other institution or organization that is eternal and victorious in this world than the church. No other place to anchor ourselves and our families such that we will be kept by the Lord and cheered by Him that the church is only a foretaste of what remains. Lastly, with this act of buying the field, Abraham did secure a place for his descendants. But it's interesting, the family of Abraham only held on to that property for a short time. When Abraham died and Isaac died, Jacob later renamed Israel. He was the last to possess it, and eventually Jacob followed his son Joseph into Egypt. At that point, the field of Machpelah was the only beacon of their faith. It was the only tangible thing that Hebrews had that could connect them to the promise of God to Abraham. God told Abraham before his descendants inherited the land, they would be servants in a foreign land for 400 years. 
but that afterwards God would bring them out of the land. So they looked in, in, in their bondage, they looked to the east, to the land of promise, knowing what? They had a possession in it. How did they know? The field of Machpelah. Once Moses led them out of Egypt and Joshua took them into the land, that lighthouse that belonged to them for all those years, that field, then became something that pointed back to what God had done in making promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Once they entered the land, the Passover and the worship at the tabernacle overtook that field as their faith anchor. The cave, the field, the trees tangible evidence of God keeping His promises to a people who didn't possess it for 400 years. One commentator said this, Abraham realizes that for the succeeding generations to remember their identification with the founding patriarchs and matriarchs, they needed a burial site by which they can memorialize their faith. That commentator goes on to say that today, besides the western wall in Jerusalem, Machpelah remains a most sacred monument for the Jewish people. It's interesting to see place and truth work together like that. But beloved, that holy nation of Israel is no more. The theocracy ended in AD 70. The faith of Abraham pointed to the coming of Christ. So also did the nation of God point to the church. Abraham's true descendants were sojourners and then citizens. And now Abraham's people, those of us who have faith like he did, were sojourners once more. So what is our beacon What anchors our faith such that it draws us forward to the promises of God, yet it points us back to what God has done for us? Any guesses? It's the Lord's Supper table. Abraham had saving faith in the covenant Lord, and that faith was memorialized in circumcision, and then Machpelah, and then Passover. For us, saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is signed and sealed first in baptism and then in the supper. You know the words of institution. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Apostle Paul pours the entire covenant of God and Christ into one phrase, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Beloved, the Lord's Supper preaches the covenant of God. It signifies not just what happened, but what is to come. It is our beacon. How did you come in here this morning? I came in here weak, burdened by the week's events, weakened in my own flesh. I need a beacon. And so I walked in here and I saw the, t- I saw the table, and I so appreciate how the deacon assistant said it. Beloved, we must eat this supper, and as we eat it, ask the Spirit to make us more and more eager for what is in store for us, and yet more and more thankful for what is behind us. And we have to teach our non-communing children the doctrines of the faith, urging them to put their faith in Christ so they also will have a beacon of their faith as we do, drawn to their forever home and in remembrance of what has gone before them. So let's eat.